Hello, Internet friends, and welcome back to Love Hate Relationship, an opinionated podcast for opinionated people. I'm your host, Andy Bowell. And I'm your other host, Alex Ruiz, and we're here to brighten your day, anger your soul, and tell you how to live your lives in that order. And uh, Andy, is your audio good? My audio is lovely, and hopefully it stays that way. Okay, okay, cool, because... I'm I'm a little worried about you just like not not I'm worried about your audio. I'm worried about your mental state concerning <laughs> your audio because I I've heard that your new podcast has had uh an audio glitch recently and our podcast obviously had an audio glitch recently and I'm not too worried about those. I'm worried about you like frantically muttering to yourself upset angry and just demolished mentally over the fact that your audio is just such a bitch because (laughs) the audio is you know your contribution here because i couldn't do what you do with this show i couldn't edit it no tv and no beer make homer something something go crazy don't mind if i do Right. Well, if uh, if any of our local friends want to check up on me and find me in a in a fetal puddle, going, I just I just want to be the McElroys. I just I just want to be like a McElroy. Um, then you'll know that I'm I'm broken and ruined for the rest of my podcasting career. But I don't think that's going to happen. Don't the McElroys have a producer though? I don't think so they they might and they've just never um made that fact known i think honestly griffin the youngest one does the bulk of their actual producing work nothing against producers Mm. i know several other podcasts that have you know a dedicated producer and that seems like an excellent idea and a hell of a luxury (laughs) no i listen to a bunch of the how stuff works podcasts and all of them will have just random off, like, quote-unquote, off-screen moments where they'll just shout things at their producers, and their producers may or may not shout things back. Right. And it's always delightful, but, you know, we, we're a small-time operation, and until someone picks us up to do that kind of thing, <laughs> which, I don't know, let's, that would have to happen before the, pop, the podcast bubble pops, right. which... It probably will at some point. I mean, Who the hey, hell knows? I've been saying that the Marvel movie bubble was going to pop since like, like when Ant-Man came out, I was like, okay, this is watch the, the wave is going to peak. And as of time of recording, uh, the San Diego comic-con just announced the entirety of Marvel phase four, which you and I haven't talked about. And I don't know if you're aware of, are, are you up to speed? Uh, I saw the announcements. Mahershala Ali is going to be Blade. The most important fucking part of the night. <laughs> and I I liked I liked Blade 1 with Wesley Snipes. Blade 2 was also I didn't like it as much as Blade 1, but I liked it. Blade 2 is Blade... the reason we have Hellboy. I'm just going to tell you. Sure. No, and that's reasonable. Blade 3 was Blade 3. Yeah. <laughs> Triple H is a vampire, whatever. But Mahershala Ali is so painfully beautiful. <laughs> it hurts me how lovely that man is. He was the best part of the first half of Luke Cage. Indeed. He is a highlight in everything you see him in. And and as Blade, I just... They got me. Like, that's the thing. <laughs> we you, you just... No, you just said, like... 
we've been forecasting the end of the Marvel universe for or the MCU forever, and like they found a way to keep it going. Because I've I would watch Mahershala Ali eat a bowl of Cheerios. I'd watch him eat a few other things too. But like, oh yeah. So I am in for that. Natalie Portman's Thor. Eh, we'll see what happens. I I trust Taika Waititi. So I'm down to see what happens there. Um, I'm down for Jane Foster Thor, but Natalie Portman seems has seemed kind of checked out for a while yeah, on MCU I was, stuff. I was so. having to talk with Mariah about that because she was like, why Natalie Portman? And I was like, well, female Thor canonically is Jane Foster, and so it kind of has to be her. And uh, I mean, I don't know. Yeah. Any, anything, anything with Jason Aaron's Thor run, which... Like, they're directly taking Lady Thor out of Jason Aaron's Thor run, I trust. And take it with TT, like you mentioned. So I'm going to hold out in total judgment until we get a preview, which is probably going to be like a year and a half at this point. But I'm, I'm cautiously very excited. Also, Marvel What If, they announced Jeffrey Wright is going to be yes. the voice of the Watcher. <laughs> which I am here for. Jeffrey Wright is right up there with Mahershala Ali as somebody who I will just like instantly watch him do literally anything or say literally anything since I'm pretty sure what if is a cartoon. It is. It is one. Apparently they're going to take a lot of the MCU actors to voice their respective characters in it, but it's a what if animated series, which makes a lot of sense because these people are too expensive to have them come in to do like the shooting for one episode. Right. But as an animated, where, you know, you actually get Scarlett Johansson to voice Black Widow, or you actually get uh, Michael B. Jordan to come back as Killmonger, like... Ooh, yes. Right? I'm down. I'm interested. And that's probably the one, like, series that I'm actually kind of excited for, because WandaVision looks eh, the Loki show looks eh. Falcon and Winter Soldier looks okay, but... I'm more, I'm more excited by the fact that apparently Baron Zemo is coming back for that. Nice. Okay. Very cool. Because that was the best take on Baron Zemo. Like, part of me wanted to see the magenta face sock, but... Eh, now, we, uh, now, now you might get a chance. Get the I might get version. a chance, but he's also... But, like, he was so good in Civil War. He was probably... He was possibly the best part of Civil War. That's not an unfair take. He's, he's no. up there with the villains. Um, I'll, I'll be interested in Loki as long as they do anything that like recent comics have done with Loki. Um, cause anything in like the past five years has been generally pretty delightful, but I haven't seen anything to confirm whether or not that will actually be the case or not. So I'm holding out judgment. Yeah, I'm down. Yeah. I, I mean, they've got me a, a Dr. Strange horror movie. Yeah. Okay. Yes. I'm down. So all of that to say, uh, you know, we don't know where the podcasting bubble is going to go. Maybe it doesn't, maybe it doesn't have the widescreen appeal as, um, as the Marvel cinematic universe, but I'm, I'm making an analogy here. So (laughs) I don't know. The one thing podcasts have going for them is the democratization of them. There's something that anyone can do at any time that helps, but it also could be that it goes the way of like fanzines which people also used to say, hey, anyone can do a fanzine. All you need is a computer scanner and a printer and a, and a computer. And this was the early 90s, and everyone was like, everybody can get one of those. 
<laughs> and then fanzines. Fanzines are still around, but they shrank a lot and got replaced by the internet a lot. So who the hell knows? Yeah. I don't know. Final tangent before we get into our topics. Um, the New York Times recently put out an article that was basically like questioning the oh my God. of podcasting. And you've, oh you, so you're God. aware of this. <laughs> For anybody yeah. who's not, basically they, they interviewed these two millennial-like, I think they were comedy writers or something, and the, they interviewed two of the worst people. They come off as such douchebags. Oh, absolutely. So these guys were basically like, yeah, we're, we're comedy writers and we wanted to expand our brand. So we went to the library and turned on our iPhone and just talked into our iPhone for like about whatever we wanted. And then we put well, that it up. Was, it, was, it was literally the podcast was called The Advice Show which I'm offended yeah, by. Right, yeah. um, it was called The Advice Show, and it was them giving unqualified advice, which, again, like, fuck you guys. Um, not to say they stole, our, they stole our shtick. There are plenty of advice shows that talk about how unqualified they are. Um, not saying that, but they're like, we expected, like, international... We, we expected, like, international downloads and sponsorships, but we didn't get that right away. So... Uh, we quit after six episodes, right. which fuck you. I hate you. Yes. So now it has been said that uh, any podcast that can successfully get past eight episodes, like that's the difficult hump, really. Uh, if you can do that, then you're probably going to be in a fairly sustainable setup. But seriously, though, fuck these two horrible people. <laughs> like. Any of, you, any of you who are out there and want to start a podcast, you know what? Actually, just going into the library and turning on your iPhones to record into it isn't the worst thing. It's not the best yeah. audio quality. People do say that, you know, for a podcast to really get some wide stream appeal, audio quality does matter. I've been talking to Stephanie since she started, since she and you started your podcast together. We've been like, maybe we should invest in a better microphone. Because right now we just have this little condenser mic that I got as a Christmas gift a while ago. So maybe we should invest in something slightly better. But, I mean, we don't have the best audio quality. But if, if the one thing standing in your way is I don't have a microphone, using an iPhone app and a quiet space in a library... Not the worst thing. That said, you got to put a little effort into it. Jesus. You got to put a little effort into it. And like the, the part that was more hilarious to me was assuming that you would instantly be picked up after like five weeks or whatever it was. Like you got to put in the time. Yeah. Like honestly. <laughs> so speaking of putting in the time without further ado, this is love hate relationship. Every episode we take a topic. One of us loves a topic. One of us hates. And then we take one of your relationship questions and give our unqualified advice, but we mean and we're well. way better at it than these pieces of shit. <laughs> exactly. Um, and this week I'm bringing love to the table. And honestly this, um, so you, you read the title, you know, I'm talking about bad out of hell. Um, I've been wanting to talk about this album for nine months, maybe like it's been a bit and just kind of put it off to the side, do some other topics. Oh, I just talked about Coed and Cambria. I can't do another music one back to back to back. We finally <laughs> taken enough of a, 
musical break that I feel validated. And even then, I think it's been like two episodes since we talked about Desmond Child. But that's Seriously. that's enough of a break for me to feel validated in talking about what I consider one of the greatest rock albums of all time. And that is sure. Meatloaf's Bad Out of Hell. Uh, and I'm totally into this. I just want it stated up front. This is Andy's topic, so I am not breaking my embargo on music-related <laughs> yeah. topics. Right. I want that stated. That said, I'm jumping in full feet because I love this album. So, Andy, please take it away. Absolutely. So, just to start it off, anyone who is unaware of Bad Out of Hell and Meatloaf, just the briefest of history lessons about all of those things. Bad Out of Hell was a 1977 album, and it was the debut rock album of Meatloaf A Day and composer Jim Steinman. And this love is not about Meatloaf, and it's not about Jim Steinman. It's about the album. But I just want to give a super quick backstory. Meatloaf was born Michael Aday in 1947 in Texas. He began pursuing both acting and singing in high school and was able to turn that into a very respectable, if not prolific, career in both of those fields. Born the same year across the country in New York was Jim Steinman, who grew up to be a composer who worked in both musical theater as well as rock, namely with Meatloaf, Bonnie Tyler, and Air Supply. And in 2014, mm-hmm. Steinman was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as a songwriter. Mm-hmm. So, to get into their their debut work, I mean, this is this is an old album, and... In the U.S., at least, Meatloaf is not, like, maybe as well-known as he would be, particularly in the U.K. Um, And I I mean mainly just towards a younger audience. I know about him because my dad was always a rock junkie, but I wouldn't be surprised if not too many other people are like, I don't know of this. I've never heard of this. I think people have heard this, but I digress. Your boy loves a concept album. And this, while not strictly named as a concept album, like, like at no point did, did Steinman or Meatloaf ever go, yeah, Bad Out of Hell's a concept album. I I think it very much counts in both of the ways that we described concept albums. It's very much about certain themes that carry through in all of the songs. And on top of that, it was originally written as a musical and then turned Mm -hmm. into a rock album. So I consider it a concept album, and I consider it one of the very best. Bad Out of Hell has been called one of the greatest 70s rock albums ever made. In the UK, it was listed as the sixth greatest album ever made. Um, It's also incredibly commercially successful. You know, I think at, at one point it was the eighth highest grossing album of all time, just in terms of commercial sales. So I'm kind of walking both sides here being like, I wouldn't be surprised if people don't know this album and don't know the work really well. But at the same time, like this is both a critical and commercial darling and millions and millions and millions of people have embraced it and love it. I'm not sure that I've ever qualified Bad Out of Hell as a concept album. I'm not mad at the assertion Uh, and I don't immediately disagree with it. It's not something that I've ever super thought of. But you are you are right that just thematically, I I know that a very big deal was made uh, in a lot of interviews, uh, specifically 
about the song Bad Out of Hell, like the title track where uh, Steinman and Meatloaf had been hanging out and listening to a bunch of old records, and they got on the topic of car crash songs and, like, loving car crash songs and naming off a bunch of car crash songs. And for whatever reason, they were like, how come no one's ever made, like, a motorcycle crash song? Wouldn't that be great, a motorcycle crash song? And basically, from that little nugget of an idea, Steinman came up with largely the Bat Out of Hell song, which kind of served as an inspirational impetus for most of the rest of the album, which, again, started off as a conceit for a musical, but I don't know how far they got in turning in, like, coming up with a musical idea before just going, no, this is a rock album. Um, I don't think very. Not not very. Um, so I do know... I remember watching the classic albums documentary of this, and I'm pretty sure I remember them saying they didn't get very far on that conceit. Well, right. So specifically, uh, originally, Bad Out of Hell was going to be a musical called Neverland, which was supposed to be a futuristic rock version of Peter Pan. Um, it began, like, workshopping in 1974, and Steinman and Meatloaf had already met and already started collaborating a little bit. And they they tried to, like, tour the workshop around a little bit and eventually decided that, like... Okay, a couple of these songs are amazing, but uh, this this Peter Pan thing really isn't working. So then it did turn into a rock project instead. Um, and those three songs were Bad Out of Hell, as well as Heaven Can Wait and All Revved Up With No Place To Go. So those were like the first songs they made. And it's actually funny, like, so they decide to turn it into a rock album and they you know, they build the rest of the album out. They, they produce it. They start trying to get it with an actual like record label, specifically, I think RCA. And I remember Jim Steinman got laughed out of the room and I, I don't remember the record producer, but somebody basically told him, you don't know how to fucking write rock. This is like, this is musical Broadway pageantry garbage. It's never going to be a rock album. Get the hell out of here. And so they, they struggled, they struggled to find, you know, in uh, enough headway to make their first successful album. And I think in a minor way, that's part of why I like it. I I love an underdog story. I love that something that went on to be like the eighth best-selling album of all time was originally laughed out of the room because that's always how it goes. You know, think about Bohemian Rhapsody, which that movie uh, flubbed a lot of things, but that concept that Bohemian Rhapsody, the song was never going to be commercial was true. Sure. And I mean, do do you want to get into kind of the weirdnesses of the individual songs at all? I'm interested to hear the weird I, I, I'm, weirdness is an interesting word. And, and I'm going to say yes now because I want to hear you explain yourself. Okay. So like, just to pick one song, let's, let's talk about Paradise by the Dashboard Light, which was one of the singles off the album, if I remember correctly. Yeah. It was like the second or third, I think. Things about it. First of all, it's a duet, which is not unheard of in this period of late 70s rock and roll. Like, there are, I know, I know um, Tom Petty and Stevie Nicks did a song together that was a duet. 
it would only be a few years later that David Bowie and Tina Turner would do a duet. Like, duets, duets are a thing. Cool. That's not the weirdest part, but it's like nine minutes long. It breaks at one point into uh, a baseball announcer bridge, which, which let's, if we just talk about like standard <laughs> pop and rock music song structure, you know, you get, you get your intro verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, solo, verse, chorus, chorus. That's a that's a formula for a fairly long rock song. That'll get you that'll get you a six minute song. Like if jer- the, the journey songs that do that, that's like there's five or six minute ones. Yes, they have their three minute ones. That's like a six minute journey song. This is a nine minute song. It's got an intro. It's got it's like verse 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 turn around verse turn around weird bridge. New turnaround. It's basically a new song for a chunk. Uh, extended outro uh, at one point, and 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 here's the part where it gets very theatrical. Uh, and I remember in the classic albums documentary, they talked about meeting like Todd Rundgren sitting down with Jim Steinman and Meatloaf, going, "Okay, this part where you have like." This uh, theater choir going, we're going to go all the way tonight, going to go all the way tonight, tonight. And, and that part goes on for what, maybe 20 seconds in the song? Yeah. They wanted that to be like a minute and a half with like going down here. And then they were going to have the basses in the chorus do it. And then they were going to have the, then it was going to jump up to the sopranos doing it. Then it was going to be this like call and response between like a baritone section and the sopranos back and forth. And then building in with the basses joining the baritones and the altos joining the sopranos. till it was this giant theater choir thing, which if you know, showstopper theater productions, think about something like, uh, one day more in Les Mis. They wanted that section to build up like that and then go into the stop right there portion with the turnaround for the song. And Todd Rundgren, who by this point I think had done like three or four concept albums, Todd Rundgren was no stranger to doing weird shit in rock albums, was like, guys, I'm sorry. But this shit cannot be, you cannot, it's already almost 10 minutes long. We can't do that. So that's what I'm talking about when I say the weirdness. It is, if you're looking at this from strict rock music sensibilities, there are some straight rock songs. I would argue, I would argue All Revved Up and No Place to Go is a pretty straightforward rock and roll song. But it's funny you mentioned that. But even then, like the weirdness, I think, is that song starts with the uh, the spoken word stuff. And, and that is definitely strange. The whole on a hot summer night, would you open your throat to the wolf with the red roses? And it's like, what? what? Uh, that's uh, that's two out of three ain't bad, my friend. I don't think so. I you want to put money on it? You want to put money on it? Yeah, because I listened to this yesterday. <laughs> All right. Looking it up. Looking it up. I'm breaking my own rule. How much money you want to put on this, Andy? I'll put five bucks on this. All right, five bucks. YouTubing. YouTube.com. And two 
out of three ain't bad album version. No, I don't want the music video. Here we go. <laughs> Stupid ads. Don't care. Fuck you, State Farm! Damn, that one didn't come out. <laughs> I promise. Oh, wait, no, I think you're right. Woo! Damn it, I owe you five bucks. <laughs> wait a minute. Da, 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 da. That's all revved up and no place to go, what you're just humming. No, no, because all revved up and no place to go starts off. It's you took the words right you out of my mouth. You took the words right out of my mouth. Okay, so I owe you five, you owe me five. Resp- yeah. We just lost our our rock and roll cred right We're here. Fucking idiots. <laughs> yeah. Oh god. Oh. Although funny enough, I feel like that entire confusion right there does lend some credence to your concept album idea because these songs blend together in such a way. Exactly. That sometimes it can be kind of hard to. Not that it's hard to parse them out because they're all such deliberate moments, but they blend together in this really deliberate way. Right. And and that's part of what I love so much about it. Like every song on, on Bad Out of Hell is about love and sex and blood and biker chrome. Like even Bad Out of Hell, a song about a motorcycle accident is still like about love and about the singer's love for the woman he's talking to. Um, you know, every, every song is this, this leather dark romance. You know, ironically, I think the best way to describe it is on the next album, bad out of hell Two. you know, one of meatloaf's most, classic songs as i would do anything for love and the music video for that is like this phantom of the opera vampire opera but there's also like a motorcycle and and a a helicopter and like candles and all kind like like that is the safe space of meatloaf and steinman's collaboration is that that late 70s early 80s dark gothic but at the same time super testosterone love opera vibe and i've always been here for it and opera is a good word for it you know because these tracks are like i like that they abandoned the larger narrative but each of these songs well not not every one of the songs is a story but Bad Out of Hell is a story. Two Out of Three Ain't Bad is a great story. All Revved Up and No Place to Go isn't really a story, I don't think. But again, that feels like a pretty straightforward rock and roll song right. to me. Paradise by the Dashboard Light is absolutely a story. Uh, and all of these story songs kind of have these really great Steinman twists. And I feel like I remember Meatloaf and a few other people talking about how Steinman loved throwing in these weird little twists you know two out of three ain't bad is a guy begging his lover not to leave him uh and she wants to leave him because he can't say that he loves her um he wants her and needs her but he can't love her and the and at the end it's revealed that the reason he can't love her was because 
there was only one person he would ever love and that person left him she needed him she wanted him but she could not love him yeah absolutely. plus it has the line there ain't no coup de ville hiding at the bottom of a cracker jack box <laughs> right. which is just one of the great lines of rock and roll <laughs> no it's delightful and it, it you know it's the same thing paradise in the dashboard paradise by the dashboard light you know it's it's about you know going to make out lake and getting lucky in the back of the car and then the twist at the end is you know the the woman saying we can only have sex if you promise yourself to me forever and meatloaf wanting to have sex wanting to fuck her so bad that he promises to be with her forever and then so now he's literally praying for the end of time. Right. They can't stand each other because they were two 17-year-old kids just trying to get lucky and they like promised their hearts to each other. That's such a weird thing to sit here and say I love that. But I love that. I love the irony. I love the I love you so much. It's it's superseding the fact that I hate living with you. I I love you and I promised I love you and I kept my promise to love you, but God, I hate you. I, I don't know. I love it. <laughs> no, I think I think it's great, honestly. Like I, I'm intrigued by this. Um, what's your least favorite song on this album? My least favorite song, it's it's hard. Because I know mine. I mean, I wanna say Heaven Can Wait, but I think about the swelling crescendo the lightning in the sky chorus to heaven can wait and so then i say okay crying out loud but then i think about the the it's the exact same like swelling brilliant chorus for crying out loud um honestly i think my least favorite is two out of three ain't bad interesting okay so funny enough for a long time my least favorite was um for crying out loud now I think it is Heaven Can Wait. But the thing is, I still love both of those songs. They're just my least favorite sure. on the album. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, like, yeah. I, I think it. I think for me it is Heaven Can Wait just because it is kind of the most straightforward. It has the least, like, weird nuances and strange things going for it. Sure. But even then, I deeply love that song. I think it's a great song. This is an album where every song, in one way or another, is a banger. And there aren't many songs on it. There's just a bunch of really long songs. Right. But no, I agree. Yeah. How many bands out of Pink Floyd and Yes can sell this many records where, what, three of the songs are over nine minutes? Eight or nine minutes? Yeah. I think the shortest one is Heaven Can Wait, and that's like four and a half or five. Yeah, I'm looking at it now. Like, Bad Out of Hell is almost ten minutes long took the words out of, right out of my mouth is five minutes long. Heaven can wait is four minutes, 40 seconds. All revved up is four minutes, 19 seconds. That is the shortest song. Okay. Two out of three is five and a half. Paradise by the dashboard light is eight and a half. And for crying out loud is almost nine minutes long. So yeah. half of the track, half of half of the songs on the album are over eight minutes long. Yeah. I'm thinking very distinctly about how... Okay, so this came out in 77. 
I keep. I think I just need to get rid of this rule where I don't do research. Um, <laughs> I was about to say I've never not done that when I have the means available to me. <laughs> Make myself seem yeah. smarter. Because uh, I want to. Okay, nineteen sixty. Okay, so thirteen years before this album came out, uh, the Righteous Brothers came out with "You've Lost That Love and Feeling." Famously, that song uh, was uh, I think five. Five minutes and 35 seconds, I think. Uh, and everyone was like, you can't release this song as a single. <laughs> it's too long. And so on the single that they sent out to radio stations, they lied and said it was like they switched the three and the five, I think. Mm. So that it would show as three minutes and 30 Three, like three minutes and 50 seconds or something sure. like that just so it would and radio stations were straight up like how come our how come our uh, shows keep running long because we timed all this out based on these based on these radio sync radio lists and we're like two minutes over every single day why is this because the number one song in america was a five and a half minute song <laughs> and no one bothered to check and 13 years later, you've got these songs coming out. And granted, that three-minute mark that was so strong in the 60s had loosened. But eight minutes, nine minutes for Bad Out of Hell, which I think was the lead single mm -hmm. on this album, that's a wide way to go. Pink Floyd may have done Echoes as like half their album, half of that one album, but that wasn't a single. That wasn't playing on radio stations unless it was like college radio at like midnight right so yeah and and to to throw this back to coheed and cambria for a moment you you haven't listened to their album afterman but the first single off of the afterman was a song called domino the destitute which was a 10 minute long song and people were like claudio you, you this can't be your lead single and he's like the fuck it can't watch So this still happens today. I don't know. Maybe I just love long format songs. That 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 feels true. <laughs> I think the thing is, I think there's room for it. You know, like honestly, there, especially nowadays, the model has changed so much. What's impressive with Bad Out of Hell is that it was doing this in the seventies, where you know that you said it yourself. The record companies did not want to do any, didn't want anything to do with this because these were long ass, weird ass songs that they couldn't really easily market right but it touched it touched a base because this was also a time period where people were warming up to things like longer songs again pink floyd was do pink floyd had come out with dark side of the moon by this point you know they there there's room there was room for those longer jams uh and i think nowadays it's even more different just because radio isn't nearly as important as right. it used to be yeah so, so granted, while there's still absolutely room for that three-minute pop jam, uh, the new Carly Rae Jepsen album, guys, that slaps. And there's a whole bunch of like nice short songs on it. But also, Coheed can come out with a 10-minute single. And people who are Coheed fans know, oh, hey, this 10-minute Coheed song is probably going to slap. <laughs> absolutely. Um, I just want, I want to tear through the rest of what I've got here. 
Uh, I have a, a terrible crush on Ellen Foley. She is the, uh, the the female vocalist on Paradise by the Dashboard Light. She toured with Meatloaf and the band and was like, like he had like two female backing vocalists and a male backing vocalist. But Ellen Foley was like the main female backing vocalist. And you can look up any uh, music video for these songs on YouTube because they're all pretty much just like concert recordings. And she's just running around being a fucking rock star. And I love her. Um, (laughs) I, I, I love the album's artwork. Like, like that is the thing I can think back on before I was even like listening to music seriously as a little kid. I just remember staring at this album with, you know, a barbarian on a motorcycle shooting out of lava on the ground and this this great terrible bat on in the background and just this like this epic 80s rock heavy metal shit. I I adored it. It's it's a beautiful album cover just like on its own and the same goes for Bad Out of Hell 2 and 3. But so why why do I why did I want to talk about Bad Out of Hell and not Meatloaf? And I think the main thing is that Steinman had a lot more to do with this, this thing that I love than Meatloaf. Don't get me wrong, I like Meatloaf. I, I love him in Rocky Horror Picture Show, I love him in Fight Club. Bob. Bob had bitch tits. I don't love his music without Steinman because they did two albums together and then had like a massive falling out and it took them 40 years to ever work together again. And that makes me sad because like it's Steinman's lyrics and compositions that I think affect me so much. Meatloaf had to deliver them of course, and he has a phenomenal voice. And I remember from that VH1 rock album, people were talking about like, it was so crazy to see a man the size of Meatloaf being a rock star. Like, I mean, at at his heaviest, he was Chris Farley sized, but he would go out mm-hmm. there and he would do like a full set and, you know, be dying. And by very the physical. Minute. But yeah, very physical, yeah. very powerful. So, you know, Meatloaf has his merits, but the thing I love about Bad Out of Hell has a lot more to do with Steinman than Meatloaf. Hmm. I think it was Bruce Dickinson uh, while talking on like VH1's 100 Greatest Artists of Hard Rock or something. Meatloaf was on it, and Bruce Dickinson is being interviewed as one of the contributing people on it, and he just goes, I don't think you can talk about Meatloaf without talking about Jim Steinman, the bruised and bloody fingers behind him. Yeah. <laughs> playing the playing the pianos. And those Steinman piano parts are ludicrous. Oh, absolutely. It's it's brilliant. And I mean, you know, we talked about on that Desmond Child episode, you being able to like hear Desmond Child over various artists. Like after I sort of fell in love with Bad Out of Hell, at some point I listened to Bonnie Tyler's Total Eclipse of the Heart and just had to oh, sit yeah. there and be like, this is Steinman. Like this is yeah. straight up Steinman jam. It could have gone on the Bad Out of Hell album and no one would have batted an eyelash. Yeah. Same thing with Celine Dion's All Coming Back to Me, which Meatloaf did a version of with Marion Raven as a duet the way Steinman had originally envisioned it on Bad Out of Hell 3. Sure. And that is a great version. I love that version. Absolutely. So, yeah, I mean, for for anyone who 
clicked on this title without really knowing what bad out of hell was, or if you like, if you know bad out of hell and meatloaf, but you haven't listened to it in a while, I'd say give it another shot or give it a chance for the first time. It is, it's not just me. Like this album sold millions and millions and millions of records. And it's weird. Meatloaf didn't really have too much lasting popularity in the U S but he is a god in the uk like they mm-hmm. adore him to this day and yeah that's that's what i wanted to bring to the table uh, one of my favorite albums period i love that i and i love this album i fully support that i'm pretty sure it's available for streaming so anybody who wants to get on it just check it out it's a good ass album yeah and with that well, thank you my friend of course my man <laughs> Oh, you are delightful, and I love you. Uh, You ready for me to open up with some hate? Yeah, because I like this one. Yeah? Okay. We haven't really gotten a chance to talk much about this episode beforehand. We kind of just sent notes and ran forward. But, um, all right, Andy, you know how I do. I like opening with a question, and uh, this one should be a relatively easy one. I want to ask you, um, you who are a fan of movies in particular, music as well, uh, you're definitely a fan of musical theater, uh, when is the last time that you sat and watched one of the well-known, famous, EGOT or EGOT-adjacent televised award shows? What was the year Dallas Buyers Club came out? Um, because that's that's my answer, that year. Were you a big Dallas Buyers Club fan? No, 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 no. And I've got a, a small story to explain. It's just I remember... That- like like that was 2013 so it would have been probably the 2014 oscars okay so which whichever oscars those were that is the last award show i watched i remember it was dallas buyers club because i remember matthew mcconaughey winning best actor and uh Mm -hmm. thanking god in his speech and that causing a hullabaloo that was like (laughs) to, to set the scene a little bit this was my second or third year in college and I decided I was going to have an Oscar party and it wound up being me, Mariah and a friend of mine from improv. And we just sat around eating chips, watching the Oscars because I decided, Oh, I, I want to take a moment in this. uh, I want to take a part in this moment and watch this thing. That was the last award show. I think I, 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 not, I think that is the last award show I have ever watched. Okay, so that would be 2013, I think. So a good six years. Yeah. Okay, all right. You had more of an answer than I did because I honestly do not remember the last time I sat through an entire award show. I really don't. Sure. I think I remember it being on kind of in the backgrounds of some stuff and I'd watch snippets here and there, but... I have not really – actually, I think the last time I watched one was uh, whatever the last time that Seth MacFarlane hosted the Oscars, Okay. which I don't even care to look up because yeah, that wasn't a very good Oscars. I was going to say, I can't tell you when that was. And I don't think I even watched the whole thing. But um, thank you for that. That is a wonderful intro here, and I actually kind of love that uh, the Os- your Oscar party – I mean, I'm sorry it didn't go very well, but I kind of <laughs> like that it illustrates this point that, you know, award shows are kind of shit. Right. So my hate for this uh, particular episode is the big award shows. 
I've struggled with how to properly phrase this. I've thought about the EG- saying EGOT Awards. I've thought about saying uh, just award show season. Uh, I'm tentatively using award shows for my purposes here. Uh, and before I get into it, I do want to be upfront and offer a little bit of disclaimer. I'm not interested in hating on individual people who just enjoy watching the Oscars or on artists who are hoping that their work will be recognized in some further legitimizing way by the Grammys or the Emmys or whomever. That's not my issue. Those aren't the people I'm mad at. I get it. The industry is one thing. Um, Just taking an interest in this stuff is, is one thing. That's fine. My issue is with the people who manage, run, and market these award shows and market to these award shows and try to perpetuate some kind of notion that the opinions of the voting committees mean jack shit for the quality of the work. Wow, an award statue! Eh, Oh, it's a Grammy. So that's my upfront disclaimer. If you like watching the Tonys, I ain't mad at you. Like, you're fine. Please continue watching them if you enjoy them. I'm trying to get it a deeper analysis. Is Is that an okay disclaimer, Andrew? I think that's a brilliant disclaimer, yeah. Okay, cool. So just to offer a little perfunctory background, uh, the current model of award shows uh, actually began with the first Academy Awards, better known today as the Oscars, held by the Academy of Motion Pictures, Arts and Sciences at the Hollywood Roosevelt Hotel in May of 1929. At that show, there were 270 attendees, there were 15 awards, and the entire ceremony lasted 15 minutes. I'm not necessarily saying we have to go back to that model, (laughs) but it would probably help with a few of the problems I have with them. I want to pick a lot on the Oscars here as kind of the main progenitor, but these things kind of apply across the board. So in the ensuing years after this, uh, the following year, uh, the show would be broadcast uh, on the radio. Uh, The program was logically expanded and altered into the Oscars that we know today. Uh, the other EGOT awards and multiple smaller, marginally to significantly less glamorous ones, all at least originated in this in the vein of this model. Uh, and that goes from ceremony structure to marketing to the voting systems for determining the winners. And the voting systems are where a lot of my criticism kind of comes in. So, Andy, what do you know about the voting system for, let's say, the Oscars? I'm desperately trying to remember if I saw either a documentary or maybe it was something for a college class that was kind of supposed to be a behind the scenes of the voting process. But the way it framed itself was just talking about how, oh, any Joe Schlub in the film community can be privately anonymously selected and it's a it, it's a, a whole thing to keep their secrecy and and make sure that they can't be biased in any way and i mean yeah yeah <laughs> no it's and that's valid um all of these academies uh all of these groups all the voting blocks for these award shows do make an effort to not publicly disclose the votership do not to disclose the member. Who exactly are the voting members? Uh, in some cases, it's an open secret. Obviously, there are certain people. No one is surprised that Steven Spielberg votes for the Oscars. Nobody. Absolutely zero people are surprised by this fact. It's, but it's not like the Academy 
is publicly disclosing we've got Steve the year that Steven Spielberg became a voter they weren't like this is gonna be the first Oscars that Steven Spielberg's gonna vote it. like it doesn't work that way um, and it's a double-edged sword like because there is something to be said about not disclosing your membership for the sake of you know keeping that anonymous and not having your those people being courted I get that, but there's another angle to it that's problematic, which I'll get into. But the main gripe I have with these voting blocks, uh, basically the way that they vote is any the studios submit their films for consideration in whatever the categories are. There's an independent block that kind of reviews everything to make sure that it's valid in that genre. Uh, for instance, for the Grammys... There are uh, people within the uh, academy, the voting academy, who just straight up review a submission and go, okay, this was submitted for best jazz vocal performance. Let's make sure that it qualifies for best jazz vocal performance. This is submitted for best hard rock performance. This sh does this qualify for hard rock or should this really be in pop? or electronic music or Americana or something like that. So there is a little bit of that vetting system. But after everything's been vetted to make sure it's in the right categories, it essentially gets distributed out to the voters. And they review it. They are welcome to pretty much all the voters, uh, regardless of their category or background, are welcome to place votes for things like album of the year or best picture or best new television show those kind of general uh categories but beyond that their votes tend to be limited to the scope of the kinds of things that they are directly involved in the actors in the academy awards aren't necessarily going to be voting on the technical categories sure. and vice versa right. you know um but both the voters for the technical categories and the voters and the actors can vote for best picture does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. So, and again, this works across the board. The Emmys kind of work this way. The Golden Globes work this way. The Grammys. Everybody kind of works along these ways. I voted before. I stuffed the ballot box at the Oscars. And the nominees for Best Actor in a Leading Role are Grover, Bluto from Popeye, A Red Guy, A Boob. And Daniel Day-Lewis. You'll get a few of the award shows, like the People's Choice Awards, which don't really have an academy. They have a different voting system. But when's the last time anyone gave a shit about the People's Choice Awards? <laughs> just, just, just being fair here. Um, or the Guild Awards. You know, obviously the Screen Actors Guild Awards. That's voted entirely by the actors in the Screen Actors Guild. Uh, so. It's a little bit more opened up in that regard, but it's basically the same voting system. The problem is these voting systems purport to a certain amount of legitimacy and see, and they like to say that they're unbiased, but are they? Andy, you, you're familiar with the term Oscar bait, right? Absolutely, and I would love to speak on it. <laughs> yes, please. You're, you as the film guy, again, I'm going to pick on the Oscars a lot here. A lot of my research was kind of Oscars-based just because if I wasn't, then I'd be sitting here trying to like dissect how the Tonys are slightly different from the Emmys, and that's not important here. What's important is where these things all kind of align. So talk to me about Oscar bait for a moment. So Oscar bait is a term that goes right along with Oscars season, and like 
if you're really paying attention, you can kind of know ahead of time what films are going to be up for certain awards based off the content of the film and the time it comes out because they all happen to come out within like the same four months ish that is the oscar season i'm talking about and critics are calling oscar bait a triumph daring and the los angeles times says oscar bait is the most blatant attempt to win an oscar since the king's speech you know an oscar bait movie you you really can see because it's either going to be about some historic event maybe a war maybe a presidency it's probably a biopic it has some sort of feel-good values, and it almost lacks an immediate commercial appeal. Like, it gets hard to describe the difference between an Oscar bait film and a summer blockbuster film, but I feel like people know what I'm talking about when I say there is a difference. Like, you don't get Oscar films about aliens invading the U.S. And you don't necessarily get a blockbuster film about a man traveling the country with somebody of a different race and and learning how to be tolerant therein. Sure. Think I... Okay, when I think of summer blockbuster... The first movie I always think about is what is commonly referred to as the first summer blockbuster, which is Jaws. So Jaws won three Oscars. You want to guess what those three Oscars were for, Andy? Technical stuff. One of them I I actually think was editing. Yes. Best film editing. Best original dramatic score, which fucking John Williams. Uh no, that, and I think that's well-deserved. And Best Sound. Now, it was nominated for Best Picture. Uh, it lost to One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, which I'm not overwhelmingly mad at. I love One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, and I think it's a great movie. Um, is it better than Jaws? I don't know. It's very different from Jaws. But think about the difference between Jaws and Cuckoo's Nest. And then think about the Academy that's voting on it. Right. Jaws is a movie... It's not that Cuckoo's Nest isn't in the popular lexicon, you know? Like, hell, they had Danny DeVito kind of reprise Jack Nicholson's part of sorts uh, in in Always Sunny. Sure. Just... just and, you know, that there's, there'll be references to it. But is, is it as much in the zeitgeist as Jaws? I'd argue no, not by a long shot. No, and I agree. And there's almost an overlap between some of these things, you know, especially because, uh, you know, uh, war movies particularly are almost exclusively, it feels like nowadays, Oscar bait movies. You make a movie about a war. Everybody knows you're putting it in consideration for the Oscars. But at the same time, war movies can be those exciting blockbuster epics and so like that's that's the overlap i'm talking about here but if all of a sudden like like independence day wasn't up for any oscars at least not to the best of my knowledge 
And like, that's what I'm thinking about. You can make a movie about a war, but if it's a movie about a war with aliens, then all of a sudden it's not going to be for consideration. Or the thing that, the thing that really puzzles me to point at recent examples, Bohemian Rhapsody was an Oscar bait movie. You know, it was sure for all intents and purposes, a biopic about Freddie Mercury. Sure. And it came out in the right time. It won awards. Rami Malek won Best Actor. And then mm-hmm. Rocket Man came out after the Oscars. And Rocket Man came out, I think, what, two months ago, three months ago? Um, Something like that, yeah. Which is not Oscar season. Summer is not Oscar season. You know, fall, winter nah. is. And I remember sitting there being like, man, Rocket Man looks really good. But they're releasing it in summer, which means they don't think it's going to be up for anything. This, this, this puzzles me. This is weird. And, and to be fair, I haven't seen rocket man. I've heard it's very good, but like, that's, that's what I'm talking about. Where like, you can look at when stuff happens and kind of get a spoiler for whether or not it is going to be up for an Oscar or not. Yeah. And and technically speaking, you know, Rocket Man could receive some. I'm sure Rocket Man will be nominated for like best song yeah. or something uh, in the following Oscars. Will it win? Who knows? Part of the problem with these voting blocks is so there's so much pressure for us for the movies to be chosen at a certain block at a certain time and. Because that's the recent movie. How long does it take a movie to fall out of the general consciousness? For a lot of these movies, the lasting impact is a lot longer. And for some of them, it is so short. You know, Get Out came out in February. And I remember a very big deal being made of the fact that Get Out wasn't getting a lot. Get Out wasn't wasn't given a lot of consideration when it was first coming out like just before it premiered because they went oh they're putting it in here so it's not going to get a lot of accolades that it probably should also it's like kind of a horror movie i I don't really consider it a horror movie honestly it's like more like a thriller but all the same it's like horror adjacent and it was because it was such a cultural touchstone for months even after it was done with its theatrical run that it got it it got a best picture nom if i remember correctly it did, yes it did not win not surprising i think it did win best original screenplay which it's funny because with the oscars a lot of people kind of say best picture is the shitty oscar bait meaningless award best original screenplay tends to be the this is the actual best movie like, actual movie aficionados go, that's probably where they're going to pick the actual best movie, is in best original screenplay huh. or best adapted screenplay. I've also seen an argument for best director being thrown in there as well, but that the, the, but the basic point is best picture is not where the fucking best picture is. Best picture is where the bullshit that makes the Oscar voters feel good comes in. That's why La La Land gets a nomination. I liked La La Land. I did. I really did. But La La Land is not a movie that will have a lasting cultural impact. It's not a movie that other filmmakers will be looking at for decades to come, pointing to and going, this is a really poignant, important piece of cinema. 
you can argue whether or not Moonlight will be. I don't know yet. I think it's too soon to tell. There are people who have argued that the Oscars should be on a five-year delay because that's when you actually know which are the best movies of that particular year right. to see what sticks around in the public consciousness. I wouldn't hate that. Which I've always thought, yeah, no, I feel like that would be really useful. But the timing on these can be so... It's even worse with, with the non-Oscar awards. Um, are you familiar with the controversy that came around... Uh, Adele's, I think, 21. Not in the slightest, no. <laughs> or maybe it was 25. Whatever album she had that came out in 2015. So a lot of people were really puzzled on that one because of the timing. So I think the Grammys, Grammy eligibility ends, I think, at the end of August. And Adele released her album, I think, in August of 2015. Or no, it was it was in like November of 2015, but that technically meant that the awards sh- it, that that technically meant that it was eligible in the 2016 season, and the awards for that didn't happen until early 2017. So Adele won 2017 Grammys for an album that technically came out in 2015. Fucking why? <laughs> That's dumb. That's idiotic. That's confusing. People who don't, people who aren't music obsessives were watching the Grammys going, when did that Adele album come out? And it's winning all these awards? Like, shouldn't that have gone for like last year? What's the deal with this? But that's just the timing of it. That's how that particular part goes. That's a minor criticism, but it's still pretty dumb and just a sign of how poorly, like, set up these award shows tend to be. But part of it, again, genre does not get respect. That is definitely one thing that I do want to emphasize here. Because you talk about summer blockbusters. We can talk about horror and sci-fi. You mentioned Independence Day? I want to talk about Alien. Sure. You know, Alien came out in, in 79, I think. And that won, that won an award for best visual effects. I would argue Alien is one of the most important movies to come out in the, in the 70s. What it did for sci-fi, what it did for horror, what it did for Ridley Scott, one of the great American directors of the 20th century, the importance of that movie cannot be understood. What it did for Sigourney Weaver, like that movie is incredible. And Maybe if the Oscars were on a five-year delay, it would have gotten some respect on that. But I honestly don't think it would have. Because, quite frankly, how are the Oscars going to reflect the nuance and importance of of an iconically designed, brilliantly acted, incredibly written sci-fi horror movie? Sci-fi horror monster movie. And that's the real key. And that's what, you know, we've been kind of dancing around and, you know, you can, it's funny cause you can point at certain recent examples, but like for the longest time it was like, okay, sci-fi movies, horror movies, superhero movies just aren't up for that because the Academy is a bunch of rich old white dudes who are culturally out of touch with what is actually popular and it's funny that we're just now sort of kind of almost maybe breaking out that trend, you know, looking at Heath Ledger's Joker or uh, Black Panther being up for Best Picture. Yes, but Black Panther was up for Best Picture because 
it was a compromise that the let's be fair, white liberals of the academy could live with. Yeah. They could go, all right, we can nominate this really important black people movie and feel good about it. It's not going to win, but like we can feel good about it. And Heath Ledger's Joker, they can go, oh, he died. So it's like, let's let's do the posthumous Oscar and we can feel good about it. If Heath Ledger hadn't died, he wouldn't have won that Oscar. I think you're right. He would have still deserved it, but he would not have won it. No, absolutely. And that's why I, I clarified sort of, kind of, maybe almost kind of. And, you know, it's funny. I would argue that that exact same, like, mindset of, oh, we need to feel good about ourselves is the reason Green Book won. Uh, the yeah. most recent best Oscar best uh, best picture because and, and that's the thing it is it's just another version of the help you know it's it's a race movie that makes white people feel good about themselves I want to mention this in 2012 the LA Times did a study uh, that revealed demographics data about 88% of the Oscars voters not the whole not the whole thing this is kind of a little more under the table of that 88%, 96% of them were white, 77% of them were male, and 54% of them were over the age of 60. These are the people who saw fucking Green Book and left happy. These are the people who saw Crash. <laughs> oh, and, and loved it dearly. These are the people who saw La La Land. Again, La La Land did not win, ultimately, but... I don't, I don't get why La La Land got the best picture nom, except for the fact that La La Land, much like The Artist, which came out in 2012, which, by the way, I liked The Artist. I liked The Artist a lot. But The Artist didn't get nominated because it was a great movie. La La Land did not get nominated because they were great movies. They got nominated because they were movies about Hollywood, about how great Hollywood was. So it made the Hollywood voters the people who work in the industry feel good about their work. It made these old ass, these mostly old ass, mostly, mostly male, almost exclusively white demographic who decided to, who probably got into the industry because they loved old Hollywood feel real good about themselves. Yeah. And that's not reflective of quality. It's not. The Grammys don't respect genre either. Very, very famously, I think it was 1988, the Grammys included Best Hard Rock Performance for the first time. And it was going to be the metal category. And I believe the nominees were ACDC, Metallica, I want to say Slayer was in there, a few others. And Jethro Tull won the Grammy. And this was 88, I think. And for a lot of people, that was the last... A lot of people in the music industry, a lot of people in these genres have spoken about that moment at the Grammys saying, that's the moment I never watched another Grammy. I never watched the ceremony again because it was all I needed to understand that this is not a genre that, this is not an entity, an institution that understands or respects us. It doesn't care to. And it never really has, you know? And that so you, you kind of lead ahead. into something that I've been chewing on. Like the thing that I almost dislike the most, I, I very much dislike how at the end of the day, it's a bunch of old white dudes our nemesis yet again. There's such a proliferation of award shows at this point 
because like just looking at music like i can think okay we got we got the tonys we got the cmas we've got a bevy of like hard rock music awards the bet awards BET awards the source awards yeah it's just we're we're subdividing and like i'm all for properly recognizing and representing these things and i guess the alternative would be like to have a four hour long award show and i'm not advocating for that but like it's so weird how like we needed to come up with all these other award shows because we weren't getting we, we we didn't feel like the grammys were doing enough to properly recognize the works we wanted them to and it's not that awards are inherently meaningless. That That is an attitude that a number of artists have had and expressed over the years, that, that these things are point and faculty complete and utter nonsense. Uh, I'm not necessarily saying that. Um, there are awards that carry some weight. You know, it was important when Kendrick Lamar won a Pulitzer for Damn. Well, sure. He might have deserved it more for To Pimp a Butterfly, but it was important when that happened. You know, it's important when Lin-Manuel won a Pulitzer. But you know what the thing about the Pulitzer is? The Pulitzer is, doesn't have a big, like, yes, there is a ceremony in which that's, the awards are announced and the honorees are honored. When's the last time you, anybody watched the Pulitzer award ceremony? It's not a market award the way that the Oscars are. And the fact is, if a movie can state that it's Oscar winning. It, cre- it it has a financial bump. The studios know this. If an album wins album of the year or song or a song wins song of the year or an artist wins an award, it's a boost in record sales. If a show wins Emmys, they put that in the marketing and it helps because a lot of people look at these awards and they go that is a marker of quality. And my thing is are there awards that can be markers of, of quality? I, I think so. You know, the Pulitzer's up there. I think the Writers Guild Awards uh, and the Screen Actors Guild Awards for movies, I think those things carry some meaning. I really do. As someone who cares about good acting and good writing in my film and television, I think those things carry some weight. Do they carry as much weight as the marketers want us to feel they do? No. I don't necessarily think that those voting blocks have their problems too, especially if we're going to talk about demographics, but this idea, this notion that Oscars are some meaningful show of quality, you know, there's a reason why we have terms like Oscar bait. There's a reason why people talk about, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio winning his Oscar for the Revenant, not because The Revenant was particularly good or his performance in that was particularly wonderful. It was good. Was it his best of his career? I don't think so. Not by a long shot. You know, Denzel Washington didn't win the Oscar for Malcolm X. He should have. So instead he wins it for something else. Spike Lee wins for Black Klansman. Okay, Black. I liked Black Klansman. Do the Right Thing is one of the most important movies of all time. 
So Spike Lee didn't win his Oscar for Best Klansman for Best Klansman. He won it because they screwed up on Do the Right Thing. Yeah, absolutely. And so if that's the case, if these things are so prevalent that, you know, the popular consciousness is aware of them, that terms like Oscar bait are what they are, why should we respect these awards? Why should we as a collective consciousness give them anything? Yeah. So, I don't have a solution necessarily. <laughs> Maybe pay more attention to other award shows. I'm not even going to, again, I'm not trying to tell people don't watch these award shows. I know people who like watching the Oscars. Who, who it's, it's a fun experience. They like watching the red carpet. They like seeing how everyone's dressed. They like watching the performances at the Grammys or any of this stuff. Uh, okay. I don't hate on you for that. Go watch it. Enjoy. It's fine. Just don't pretend they're a marker of quality. Don't don't let the marketing people get to you. I don't, I don't I I hate dissing on marketers because like people I know and love are in marketing. Like a lot of them. You kind of can't be a writer without knowing some people who work in marketing because a lot of writers go into marketing. Right. But make the marketer's job harder is what I'm saying. Don't don't let them act like any of this that has however many years equals gravitas. We already talked about how traditions are bullshit. Just because something's old, just because there's been 90-something Oscars, doesn't mean the Oscars are worth a fuck. Amen, man. If you... Yeah. So, that's my two cents on that one. Uh, you you want to go into our question? I feel like we should. <laughs> okay, okay. We're an hour 20 in. Uh, you want to read this one or should I? I'll go ahead. Okay, go for it. Hey, guys. Love the show. Sorry if this is a little open-ended, but I'm a 20-year-old cis woman who has finally gotten my shit together enough to use this insurance stuff that my nice full-time job has been letting me pay for for the last two years. And I was wondering well if you have any advice on finding a good doctor, dentist, and, if you guys are comfortable commenting, gynecologist. Google's got way too many options, and none of the friends I've asked have recommendations, since they're all basically in the same boat I've been in. What should I look for? What questions should I ask? How do I build that relationship? And this was not given a name. Uh, okay, so we're looking at someone seeking medical assistance. Um, what's a good medical reference? Grey's Anatomy, the main character wasn't named Grey, was she? <laughs> <laughs> I have never seen a single episode of Grey's Anatomy. I have never given enough of a shit. Yeah, that's fair. Um, are you a Scrubs fan at all? Oh, of course I'm a Scrubs fan. Elliot Reed? There you go. <laughs> all right, Elliot. Elliot Reed, here this, we go. This actually seems like a very JD and Elliot kind of problem, so. Morgan, möchten Sie die Kühe melken? I can do an evil old housefrau. Es ist ein Schnitzel, sonst kriegst du keinen Nachtisch. Yeah, you know what? You're not wrong. <laughs> okay, so uh, do you want to open for Elliot or shall I? Um, I, I read. You go ahead and open. Okay. Uh, so, Elliot, first of all, congratulations. Uh, 28 years old. You've got, you've got benefits, yo. That ain't nothing. I know a few people your age and older who don't have that benefit. So, kudos. Uh, I'm glad you've only been paying for it without using it for two years. Uh, so glad you're getting on that train. Congratulations. Uh, the conversation for a 
doctor, dentist, and gynecologist. Uh, I'm comfortable commenting on it in so much as uh, giving some generalities. I don't know what your experience are with them in the past, but I'll try and keep this fairly open-ended. Uh, with all three of these, I would, I, I would have at first admitted uh, asking you to talk to people you know and try and get references, but you say you don't have any. Um, that's okay. Uh, or li- rather, they don't have any references. The f- first thing I'm probably going to say is you talk about Google having way too many options. Honestly, I would probably just say take an hour, maybe not even that long, you know, and just scroll through and read the various, um, a small sampling of the top, middle, and worst reviews of a lot of, uh, of a, maybe the first page of those Google results and just pick one. Um, the criteria doesn't matter terribly. Uh, you're just kind of starting out with this. Just because you set up an appointment with, say, a GP doesn't mean you have to have that GP for the rest of your life. You can do your first checkup with someone. Uh, and then if you decide you have a bad experience a year later, do another checkup with somebody else. That's okay. Uh, but basically, just don't be afraid to kind of just throw a dart at it and go for it. I will say it will help if before you do this, think about the things that you don't want. Uh, A lot of women I know say that they are not comfortable with male gynecologists, for instance. Totally valid. You know, a lot of people, for for some people, that's not a problem at all. But that's the kind of question of preference you may want to ask yourself. Are you, do you want someone who is close to your age so you can have a certain amount of rapport with them? Do you want someone who is older Um, do you, all of these are valid. These are just the questions you need to ask yourself. Um, they might also help you rule people out. You know, do you want a dentist who's been in practice for 10 plus years? Do you want a dentist who maybe is a little younger so you can shoot the shit with them a little bit more? These are okay things to call and ask about, uh, inquire about, look at their websites, look at their staff. Do you not want a whole bunch of old white dudes? Totally valid. I mean, I just maybe don't call and be like, yo, how many old white dudes you got on staff? But ask yourself these questions. Maybe make that list of your I don't want these. I do want these. Just start going through that list and just pick one to get started. You can always change it later. Andy, I want to give you an opportunity. I appreciate that, man. Yeah, Elliot. So my biggest thing, and I, I do feel comfortable giving you advice on all three locales because I think you're looking for the same thing no matter what. You know, you want somewhere you're going to be feeling comfortable. You want something with a good vibe. Um, the thing I was queuing up to say was maybe you take a day after you've looked up these Google reviews and figured that out and you just, you know, spend an afternoon location scouting these places you know i do that anytime we uh we go apartment hunting i i'll just take an afternoon and i will like go see the apartments even even without like you know going in and asking anybody anything because you just want to get a feel of the location i think location is important you know you don't want your doctor's office to be on the opposite side of town from you and at the same time, you don't want your dentist office to be in a shady, crappy looking, 
you know, part of where you live. You know, it's uh, it's important to feel comfortable and safe. And I think part of that is just off your initial first impressions. If the first impression, you know, is good and then it goes south, like Alex said, you don't have to stick with anything. But that's kind of the biggest chunk I was going to uh, offer you as advice is get a vibe for what's around you and what makes you feel comfortable. Yeah. It sounds like you, I don't know if you live in a big city or like a town or medium sized thing. Location is a great idea. You know, I, my GP and my dentist both are pretty close to my job. So I can always kind of head over there, uh, after work hours will matter. Um, I don't work on Fridays, so I was okay having someone who wasn't available on the weekends as long as they were open on Fridays. That was useful to me. So I can just go on my Friday day off and I'm good to go. These are questions to ask yourself. Um, Yeah, so kind of just find things to narrow them down. If you are if you are suffering from too many options, do some dumb stuff. Pick somebody who looks pretty <laughs> or whose name you like saying. Like that shit's valid if you're just paralyzed by indecision. Um, I wonder how much of that might be involved in this, especially I know a lot of people your age and in your situation who have never had to look for their own anything in this regard. You know, I had the same doctor from the time I was five until the doctor that I have right now that I just started with like two years ago. I had the same deal with my dentist. I got a new dentist this year and it was the first dentist I had since the one that I had before I left for graduate school. And literally I came home from graduate school on like summers and winter break and set up my dentist appointments with this person. So I had the same dentist until I was like 26 from five to 26. So all this to say, it can be scary. Just pick somebody. You don't have to stick with them. The questions to ask, um, are essentially the questions that are important to you. Uh, I would be remiss if I didn't mention you say that you are a cis woman. There are a lot of GPs who have very bad histories with listening to their female clients with their female patients. Uh, So you may want to look to see if, and and that is true whether the doctors are male or female actually. Uh, So you may want to look to see if there's any in the reviews, just is there any history of them say, ignoring women who are saying they have certain symptoms and going, oh, that's just period pain, but actually it's appendicitis uh, or anything. Those things happen. So look for stuff like that. Um, That might not be a question you ask of them directly. That might be a question you research. Um, Questions to ask, how many other clients of your demographics do they see? Do they see other 28-year-old cis women of your economic strata. Um, 
maybe show them your history if you have any medical conditions and ask them if they have any experience if you have any particular health issues or any particular health histories. How do you build that relationship? Talking to them, honestly. Um, don't ever lie to your doctors. If you have a doctor you think you have to lie to, uh, get a different doctor, period. Yeah. If you smoke weed, it should be okay to tell your doctor you smoke weed. Because part of doctor-patient confidentiality is they go, all right, patient smokes weed. Cool. Like that, they, they should be able to confidentially mark that. And if they can't, um, or if that's something you're not comfortable admitting to them, that is something you will probably want to get to, like, that's the kind of thing you can research. If that's something that they're willing to hold, ask them what, ask them how important confidentiality is to them. Like, honestly, you can, you can go. So hypothetically speaking, if I admitted to you that I did X, X and Y, what would be your response to that? You're not admitting to doing anything, but if their response to that shows any kind of narkness or any kind of discomfort with dealing with that, then that's not going to be a doctor for you. And it's okay to shop around. It's okay to spend a couple of years going, all right, I did a checkup with this doctor. I didn't like him because he was shitty about this. Okay, then I went to this one. I didn't like her because she said this and said this and said this and ignored this. Uh, so let me try this third guy. And that's, if you're only going for a checkup once a year, that's fine. You can do that. That's not hard. They can transfer your files. Just keep the contact information and put in the request. It is a one-page form at most. Yeah, I, I couldn't have said it better, man. Like, and and just really the the biggest point you mentioned it uh, a few moments ago is to make a choice. I've I've had several friends, you know, make the joke of, "Oh, I'm I'm adulting today. I I made a, a dentist appointment for myself, and man, that was terrifying." And we all like to make that joke, but like there is a a millennial anxiety component. You mentioned how, you know, you can't really ask any of your corporeal friends because they're all in the same boat as you and they don't really have the answers. I think above all else, you know, do some research, get a good vibe, but promise yourself that you make a choice, even if it's just for that checkup. And, and what you don't want to do is, you know, let the anxiety become overwhelming and then just not do it. So I believe in yeah, you, Elliot. I think that's smart. I do too. Um, I think this episode is dropping in August. Uh, so assuming that you haven't already done so, I'm going to challenge you, Elliot. Um, I want you to, before this year is out, you can do one of these each month. Set up an appointment with a GP, set up an appointment with a dentist, set up an appointment with a gyno. You can space them, space the appointments out however long you want, understanding you will probably be going to these people. The dentist you should be going to twice a year. The GP and gyno you'll be going to at least once a year, if not more frequently. So space those out as you want. Um, probably don't make them all the same month, just because that means that you know every September you're going to have all your checkups, and that's going to be shitty. Um, but before the end of this year, make it make the appointments so that you go to all of them and take your notes and ask the appropriate questions. 
Does that help? Is that you think that was good, Andy? I think that was great, man. You know, if okay. uh, it, so. let us let us know how your your journey goes, and you know if if you were able to use any of our advice. You know, we'd we'd love to hear back from you. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Andy, you want to tell them how they can uh, tell how they uh, how we can hear back from them? Holy shit! Absolutely. So we can hear back from you if you have a uh, response to any question we've answered in the past, or if you have a new question yourself, you can send those into love hate relationship podcast at gmail where we promise we'll listen to them. Yeah, and uh, of course you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or even TuneIn Radio. Hey, Mom. Uh, We would also love it if you uh, rated and reviewed us on any and or all of those. Uh, You can also tweet us at LHRPod, that's L-H-R-P-O-D, with your questions, and you can follow us there to keep up with new episodes. That's right. If uh, if you've enjoyed our movie talk today, I, not so recently at this point, uh, started another podcast called Cult Fiction with the incomparable Stephanie Johnson. We watch cult movies and we, uh, we talk about them and laugh about them, and it's a great time, and you can follow that at Cult Fiction Cast. Or you can find it at, I believe, any of the places Alex just listed. If you want to find Straight me up. personally, I'm Andy Boel, and that's JovoCop2113 on Twitter. And I'm at A underscore X underscore R-U-I-Z on both Twitter and Instagram. Thanks for listening, y'all. Uh, as always, tell your enemies. Jeffrey Wright is right up there with Maharshala, Maharshala Ali. Uh, Maharshala. Get it right. Mahersh- yes. You can say Barishnikov. You can say Maharshala. Fair enough.